Sermons are not meant to be chopped up and then preached. So imagine reading a sermon manuscript preached by John Calvin or Jonathan Edwards or Martin Luther and just reading one or two sentences from that sermon or even just reading one paragraph without reading the rest of the sermon and then imagine preaching a sermon on just that little excerpt that you read. Imagine someone reading my sermon manuscript from last week and reading the following three sentences and then preaching a sermon on it. I said this last week, it is by faith that we believe that God simply spoke this world into existence. God spoke and created out of nothing and if his word is powerful enough to create the Milky Way and planets and stars and aliens. So imagine reading that and then preaching a sermon on that little soundbite. Well, if that's all that you read or heard from my sermon last week, then you would conclude that I believe that God created aliens, that he created these extraterrestrial beings. But, but I don't believe that. Like I told you last week, the great... Baptist preacher from London, Charles Spurgeon, actually believed that. Spurgeon believed that God created this universe because it's so vast and there's so many planets out there that there must be other life forms on those planets. So here's what he said in a sermon that he preached on Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. He says, Notice next that Jesus Christ is the creator by whom also he made the world's. However many worlds there are, we know not. It may be true that all those majestic orbs that stud the midnight sky are worlds filled with intelligent beings. It is much more easy to believe that they are than that they are not. For surely God has not built all those magnificent mansions and left them untenanted. It were irrational to conceive of those myriads of stupendous worlds, vastly bigger than this poor little speck in God's great universe, all left without inhabitants. So Spurgeon believed in aliens. I imagine Charles Spurgeon would like the Twilight Zone or the X-Files. And you might think that I believe in aliens if you just read those few sentences from my sermon Last week. My point is that sermons are not meant to be chopped up like that and, and dissected. Sermons contain one big idea and a flow of thought, and they're not meant to just take a little soundbite from it and then expand on that. They're not meant to be dissected that way. But that's exactly what we are doing with the book of Hebrews. As I have told you numerous times, I believe the book of Hebrews is a sermon written by some man to a group of churches. The difference between the sermon that is the book of Hebrews and my sermon or one by Calvin or Edwards or Luther or Spurgeon is that the sermon that is the book of Hebrews is the word of God, whereas my sermon is not. But the way that we are chopping up the book of Hebrews, the sermon of Hebrews, may cause you to scratch your head and wonder. We have to chop it up. We can't preach the entire sermon that is the book of Hebrews in one sermon. There's just too much there. But So we have to chop it up today. And the way we're going to chop it up does not jive with normal English Bible paragraph divisions. So don't be disturbed by how we're marking off this sermon today. Most people would have done Hebrews chapter 11 in one or two or three sermons, and they would have ended at 
chapter 11, and then they probably would have preached verses 1 and 2 together and then continued in verse 3 of chapter 12 with another one. But we're going to chop it up a little bit different. Just remember that those paragraph divisions and those bold-faced headings in your English Bible are not inspired. Yes, this is an odd way to chop up this section of Hebrews, but I hope you'll see by the end of the sermon why it should be preached in this way, why it should be all held together, this unit. And what we'll see in this chopped up section of Hebrews is that we need to consider Jesus. We will be reminded once again, like we were earlier in the book of Hebrews, that we need to consider Jesus, that when life is good, we need to stop and pause and and consider him again. And, And when life is hard, we should stop and consider Jesus. No matter what is happening in our lives, we can never go wrong if we just simply stop and consider who Jesus is. And that's exactly what the people who are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 did. So let me show that to you. Look again at Hebrews chapter 11 beginning in verse 29 and hear the word of the Lord. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now, unfortunately, we had to break up chapter 11 because we simply did not have enough time last week to cover all of it. But the idea here is the same. The idea is continuing, is that we as disciples of Jesus Christ are called to trust what God says over what we see. We're called to trust what God says in His Word over what we see. We're called to trust His promises over our perceptions And like we saw last week, trusting Jesus is hard because honestly, it's just so much easier to be stressed out, isn't it? It doesn't take any work to be stressed. It doesn't take any work to worry about something. It just happens naturally. So it's hard to trust Jesus because it's so easy to worry and to stress. And that's why we are called to fight the good fight of faith. And that's exactly what the people in Hebrews chapter 11 did. In Hebrews 11, we see that everything that these people endured were all experiences where they had the opportunity to to experience fear transfer, where they could be freed from their fears so that they could learn to trust God and his promises. And God put these people in these situations so that they would learn anew just how powerful He was. God led the nation of Israel out of Egypt to the edge of the Red Sea with nowhere to go and with Pharaoh and his army hot on their trails. And God led the nation of Israel to simply march around Jericho. And God led Rahab to risk her life to hide the Israelite spies. And what they saw with their own eyes was that God could, in fact, chop a sea in half if he wanted to. They saw with their own eyes that he could chop down city walls just by having people walk seven days and then letting out a shout. And they saw that he could spare the life of a prostitute who was hiding God's people. But when you're standing on the seashore and you're walking around a city and you're hiding spies, it's scary because you fear 
for your life. You feel it on your skin. You feel that fear on your skin. It's very real. You see your enemy behind you, marching towards you, and all you see in front of you is water. You have nowhere to go. You see thick city walls that look fortified, and you have to march seven days and then just let out a shout, and they're supposed to fall down. And if you're like Rahab the prostitute, you hide two spies scared that you're going to be found out and be killed. And so what these stories are reminding us in Hebrews 11 and these people is that God takes us and he leads us to these places. And sometimes the storms and the trials appear stronger than God's promises, don't they? Sometimes the storms and the trials of life that we go through appear stronger and more ominous than God's promises. Like like they would overshadow God's promises. And so our eyes can deceive us. Our, Our perceptions can be deceptive. And that's why we must always get recalibrated by looking to Jesus time and time and time again. In fact, that's what a whole bunch of other people in Hebrews chapter 11 did. So look there at verse 32 now. The preacher continues, And what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, and Samson, and Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Think about all that these people endured. By faith, some were victorious and conquered kingdoms. Some enforced justice. Some obtained promises. Some stopped the mouths of lions. Imagine being able to do that. By faith, I'm being tortured for being a Christian. And by faith, I'm going to stop the mouth of this lion that wants to eat me. And by faith, some quench the power of fire The preacher says, they escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of their weakness. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. And he says that some women even received their dead loved ones back by resurrection. And then others, not so much. Some people were assigned different circumstances by God. By faith, some were tortured and mocked and beaten and imprisoned. And some, by faith, were stoned with rocks and chopped in half, sawn in half, he says. Imagine that. Imagine what it's like if God's call on your life is that you get chopped in half because you believe in Jesus. That you get chopped in half because you're a disciple of Christ. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You'll be sawn in half, chopped into pieces. And so some of these disciples were killed. And some went around, and and the only clothes that they could find were the skins of sheep and goats. And some were homeless. They just roamed deserts and mountains. And some of them lived in dens and in caves. And so what the preacher is telling us is that Jesus has different priorities for every single one of us. Some of us will conquer kingdoms. 
And some of us will be cut in half. Jesus has different priorities for all of us. But we all have to trust him, whether through gain or whether through loss. Whatever God has called you to, wherever he has called you to go, whatever is going on in your life this morning, at this moment, that whatever thoughts are, are keeping you up at night, the stress, whatever's in your heart and your mind, even this moment as you sit here in this church, you can never go wrong. In fact, you must continually consider Jesus. Whatever situation you find yourself in this morning, consider Jesus. Think about Him. Look to Him. Consider that He reigns supreme over all of creation. Consider that He is sovereign and in His wisdom, He has you right where you are right now for a reason. Consider that only He can change a human heart. Consider that nothing is impossible for Him. Consider that He is working all things out for your good. Even though you can't see it, He's working all things out for your good and His glory. Consider that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Sometimes God will call you to conquer kingdoms in his name. Sometimes he will call you to enforce justice. Sometimes he will call you to be mighty in war or to quench the power of fire or to stop the mouths of lions. And when you're in that season of life, you must time and time and time again stop what you're doing and pause and consider Jesus. Consider who he is. And sometimes God will call you to be tortured. Sometimes God will call you to be mocked at your workplace because you follow Jesus. Or he'll call you to be beaten for your faith. And maybe even imprisoned and put in chains. And when you're in that season of life, you must stop time and time again and consider Jesus. And that's exactly what these saints in Hebrews chapter 11 did. They were victorious and they suffered. They conquered and they were cut in half. And how did they do it? By faith. They trusted what God said over what they could or could not see. They were looking to Jesus. Wherever God had called them, in whatever situation they were in, they stopped and said, by faith, we're going to consider Jesus one more time. They were looking to Jesus. They were looking forward to the city that is to come. They were looking forward to the resurrection Coming back from the dead and having a new glorified body that never sins and never gets sick again. But guess what? They did not receive what was promised to them. Think about that. They did all of these things by faith, trusting in God's promises, and they still didn't get what was promised to them. They did not experience resurrection. They, do, they did not get a glorified body yet. Their spirits right now are in heaven, and their bodies have been left behind. They're awaiting resurrection, but... They don't have that glorified body yet. That's what they were looking forward to. Now why? Why did they do all of these things for God and still not get what was promised to them? Why did they look to the city that is to come, but they don't get to experience it yet with the resurrected body? Well, they See, the answer to that concerns you and me. And I think it will knock your socks off. The reason why 
they didn't get what was promised to them yet, might even change your eschatological position. It might even change your end times position. Some of you might even change your end times position in the next few minutes like that. Let me show you from verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. The saints in Hebrews chapter 11 didn't receive what was promised because God had something better for us. They didn't receive what was promised because of us. They didn't receive what was promised because we haven't died and been resurrected yet. In other words, they were looking forward to the city that is to come, but they can't enjoy that city until every single person who has ever been justified by grace through faith alone in Christ alone is there to experience it with them. They were looking forward to being resurrected and enjoying Jesus on the new earth, but they haven't received that yet because we are still here. Because Jesus has not come back yet. They won't experience resurrection and getting a glorified body apart from us. In other words, all of God's people will enter into eternity at the same time. We will all get resurrected bodies, new glorified bodies at the same time. We will all enjoy life on the new earth at the same time. Listen to the preacher's words again. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They should not experience resurrection apart from us. They should not experience a glorified body apart from us. The saints that die before us, their spirits go to be with Jesus and their bodies are left behind to await resurrection. So the saints that die before us do not get to enjoy eternity apart from us. We will all get new bodies and be with Jesus on the new earth at the same time. This means that when Jesus returns, which I think can happen at any moment, then we will all be changed in an instant. Those people listed earlier in Hebrews 11, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, all of them. Abraham will not get his new glorified resurrected body and enjoy it before you enjoy yours. Moses will not get his new glorified body before you. We will all experience that wonderful moment together and at the same time so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Understand this, Grace, with all of his heart. God looks forward to giving all of us his kingdom in all of its fullness for all of his people and all at one time. No one is going to get a glorified body and have it for a hundred years or even 1,000 years before others get theirs. We will enter into heaven together. No one enjoying or being made perfect apart from other Christians. What we all have longed for and hoped for, we will all experience at the same time in an instant in the twinkling of an eye. And this hope is ours because of Jesus. All of these saints were looking forward to Jesus. And we look to Jesus too. 
the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We consider Jesus. We look to him and we lay aside the weight of sin. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now remember the context of the sermon that is the book of Hebrews. The Hebrews were being tempted to give up. They needed endurance, as we saw back in chapter 10. And so the preacher is encouraging them to persevere just like the saints that he's mentioned here in chapter 11. Those mentioned in Hebrews 11 are witnesses to us that the people of God suffer in this world and we must endure and we must learn to trust what God says over what we see. The imagery is not that these witnesses are looking down and watching us. I don't think they're gathered around and they're, they're watching us right now. I don't think that's what he means here. And here's why. It's because they're with Jesus. They're enjoying Jesus right now. I doubt they're concerned about watching us. Do you think they are interested in the political climate in America right now? Or be with Jesus? Who are you going to pick? They're with Jesus. They're enjoying Jesus. They're being captivated by Jesus right now. Listen, my life is not that interesting so that someone in heaven would peek down and be like, i got to watch this guy's life. Man, this is awesome. They're with Jesus. They're enjoying Jesus. So what in, in what sense are they witnesses to us? They're a witness to us that we can make it. Their lives are a witness that by God's grace and by the power of his spirit, we will endure. Some of us will shed our blood and be martyrs, but we'll make it to the end. Some of us might be chopped in half, but we'll still experience resurrection and receive a glorified body. And the saints of Hebrews chapter 11 are a witness to us of what the normal Christian life is like. Suffering, hardship, trusting God when it's hard, enduring through hardships and pain. They are witnessing to us that the Christian life is a race. That's the imagery here. It's a long race. It requires energy and work. It requires pressing on. And As we saw last week, it is not easy. We keep our eyes on the finish line, which is eternity with Jesus on the new earth. That's what the witnesses in chapter 11 are telling us. They're witnessing to us that we must endure this race and we endure it by keeping our eyes on Jesus. And the reason the preacher brings these people up in chapter 11 is so that now he can turn to us in chapter 12 and say to us, now it's your turn. Now it's your turn by faith to lay aside what encumbers you and to run the race with endurance by keeping your eyes on Jesus. And so that's our calling, to lay aside everything that hinders us from running this race. And so how do you lay aside the weight that keeps you from running? How do you lay aside sin? How do you run this race with endurance? Would you like to know the answer to those questions today? 
mean, do you really want to lay aside sin? Those things that, that weigh you down and keep you from running the race that is set before you. Do you really want to get rid of what entangles you and what, what encumbers you? And do you want to run with passion? Well, here's the answer. Consider Jesus. That's it. It's that simple. Listen, I went to seminary and got a, a THM, a Master's of Theology, a four-year degree. And you get to the end of seminary and you realize, man, life is really just about those two words. Consider Jesus. You're counseling someone, you're just telling them, consider Jesus. You got problems in your life, consider Jesus. There's a lot of money and a lot of time spent in seminary to figure out those two words are what it's about. Now, I'm not downplaying the heaviness of the, and the brokenness of sin in this world. It's, it's not that simple, but it is that simple. How do you lay aside the things that weigh you down in the Christian life? How do you lay aside and be set free from those sins which cling so closely to you? And our sins do cling so closely to us, don't they? How do we do it? It's by looking to Jesus by being captivated by him, by having our souls captivated by his beauty and his worth and his glory, by being entranced by Jesus, by being satisfied in him so that he becomes our treasure in this world so that we could say with the psalmist in Psalm 43, I will go to God, my exceeding joy. That's the only way to throw off the weights that hinder us from running the race is by being captivated by Jesus and saying, he's my treasure, he's my everything. It's the only way. Listen, you can counsel people and say, don't go down this path because this is what's gonna happen. You're gonna destroy your life, you're gonna destroy your marriage, you're gonna destroy your family, your church, your friends. You can tell people that and they might still look at you and say, but that's the path I wanna walk on. Even though though they know everything that could go wrong in their life because of that. The only thing that will truly get someone's heart to change and to turn is for them to see the beauty of Jesus Christ once again. So that they would turn and say, I don't want those temporary pleasures. I want unending pleasures forevermore with Jesus. That's the only way to throw off the weights and hinder us from running the race. That's the only way to sever the sin that clings so closely. That's the only way to chop off the sin that that clings so closely to us is by looking to Jesus. It's by considering Jesus, by pondering Jesus, by feasting on Christ and all of his benefits, by doing what the psalmist says in Psalm 36 is, is by drinking from his river of delights. He says, you give us drink from your river of delights. It's where you realize spiritually you're in a desert apart from Jesus, apart from Christ, and you come crawling to the edge of the water, the river of his delights, and you just lap it up and drink, and you just go, ah, that's what it means to be a Christian, to say, Jesus, you satisfy me more than anything that this world has to offer. How do we do this? What are we to consider and focus on? We think about who Jesus is, and we meditate on his suffering for us. As the preacher says here, he's the founder and the perfecter of our faith, and yet he suffered. We saw that back in Hebrews chapter 5, that Jesus' whole life was one of suffering that culminated in the shame and the humiliation of the cross. But notice that Jesus did not shy away from the suffering. He knew that this is why he came, 
to suffer for the sins of the elect, those people that God had decided to give to his son. He chose to suffer in this world, to go to the cross and to bear the curse of the law for our sins, to be cut up, chopped up, if you will, and crucified on our behalf for our sins. And so he was empowered by the Holy Spirit to endure the cross and endure a life of suffering, to despise the shame and humiliation that a public crucifixion would bring to him. And he did that because he had his eye on one thing, eternity with us on the new earth as we shared in a resurrection like his. That's the joy that was set before him. What kept Jesus going was the joy that was set before him, the joy and the glory and the love that he shared with his father in eternity past. He longed to share that with us. Remember what Jesus said in John 17. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Stop there for a minute and think about that. Christian, God the Father loves you just as much and with the same kind of intensity and passion that he loves his own son Jesus. He loves you as much as he loves his son Jesus. Let that sink in. But then Jesus continues, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The joy that was set before Jesus was that he would bring us into the glory and the love that he shared with his Father and that we would experience that in resurrected, glorified bodies on the new earth. And so the glory that we're being brought into for all of eternity is the love that exists between God the Father and his son Jesus. We get to spend eternity getting caught up in their love and being swept away by their love. That's the joy that was set before Jesus. Us sharing in their love. That's glory. Here's what Martin Luther said about Jesus' words in John 17, 24. We should let this utterance be our soul's pillow and bed of down and with joyful heart resort thereunto when the sweet hour of rest is at hand. Jesus' promise that we will be brought into God's eternal love should be the pillow that our soul rests upon when we are suffering, when hardship and trial comes into our life. It should be the soft, comfortable bed that our soul relaxes on and rests in when our lives are threatened because we follow Jesus. It was this that enabled Jesus to endure the cross. 
It was the joy of his elect people, those people that God the Father gave him, that he came to live and die for. It was the thought of being gathered around God's throne as we share in his resurrection, having glorified, resurrected bodies on the new earth. It was the joy of us being gathered around his throne where Jesus is seated and finding our joy and our satisfaction in him. It would be us together with the triune God glorifying and enjoying him forever. That's what Jesus was looking to. That's what enabled Jesus to endure suffering. And so the preacher is encouraging the Hebrews to consider Jesus once again. That this is how he made it through suffering. Jesus suffered. And the saints in Hebrews chapter 11 suffered. And the preacher knew that the Hebrews were not granted immunity to suffering. Jesus suffered. Those in Hebrews 11 suffered. And I think he expects it to happen to them too. I think he's saying, and you're going to suffer because of what he says next. Look at verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Why do the Hebrews need to consider Jesus? so that they won't grow weary or faint-hearted in this race. The preacher seems to imply that suffering is coming. He tells them that they haven't suffered to the point of shedding blood yet. They haven't been beaten or flogged or even chopped in half yet. But he seems to imply that it's coming. And I think that's why he brings up the suffering of Jesus and the sufferings of those in chapter 11. It's to remind the Hebrews that following Jesus means that you will suffer for your faith. Listen, Grace. Christian, listen. Following Jesus as a disciple in this life means that you will suffer for your faith. The Hebrews might be flogged, He's hinting that they might be beaten, they might be stoned with rocks, they might be put in prison, they might be put in chains, they might be killed with the sword, they might get sawn in two, they might get chopped in half, and so might we. So so might we, Grace. We are not exempt from this. Some of us might be imprisoned one day because we're disciples of Jesus Some of us might be flogged. Some of us might be beaten. Some of us might be stoned with rocks. Some of us might be put in prison. Some of us might be put in chains. Some of us might be killed with the sword. Some of us might get sawn in two, chopped in half. Or, we may not see it, but it might happen to our children and our grandchildren, which is why we are all about discipleship here at Grace. We want to be busy making disciple-making disciples. We want to teach our children that Jesus is better. We want to point to him as the most satisfying pleasure in this world so that when the day of testing and suffering comes to them, they will remain steadfast by God's grace. So that when the day of temptation comes, they will remain steadfast by God's grace. Discipleship is really a lot about understanding that Jesus loves you to death and people will hate your guts for following him. That's one way to think about discipleship. It's this. Jesus loves you 
and people will hate your guts. And that's what we have to pass on to each generation so that they are prepared for suffering, so that they are prepared for temptation. And it's as simple as telling them this. Consider Jesus. This is what the Christian life is all about. It's keeping our eyes on Jesus. It's about coming back to the Lord time and time again. It's about what we like to say around here at Grace. It's about rehearsing the gospel, remembering that Jesus lived and died for us, remembering that he perfectly kept the law on our behalf, remembering that he took the curse of the law upon himself upon the cross. It's remembering that he loved us and gave himself for us. This is what discipleship is all about. Discipleship is all about telling one another all the time, every day, week after week, consider Jesus. I mean, that's it. Those two words are the backbone of discipleship. You may be thinking, I don't know how to disciple anyone. Well, you can run into someone at the grocery store, someone that you know that's a Christian and they're struggling. And in that moment, it's a moment of discipleship where all you have to say is, consider Jesus. That's discipleship. Those two words are the backbone of discipleship. Those two words are the backbone of what we do as a church. Our songs are all about those two words. Our sermons are all about those two words. So let me ask you today, what's going on in your life? Do you have marriage problems today? I've got two words for you. Consider Jesus. Parenting problems? I've got two words for you. Consider Jesus. Church problems? You got issues with somebody here at church? I've got two words for you. Consider Jesus. The broken relationships, consider Jesus. Stressed out, worried, consider Jesus. Battling lust, battling temptation, battling worry, battling fear, consider Jesus. Buried under the weight of guilt and shame, consider Jesus. Because when you consider Jesus, it brings hope. When Jesus comes into a situation, it brings hope. There's hope when Jesus is around. Whatever situation you find yourself in this morning, consider Jesus. Look to him. Consider that he reigns supreme over all of creation, all elections, all news channels, all media outlets. Consider None of you guys are struggling with that right now, I know. Consider that he is sovereign and he is orchestrating every detail of your life. Whatever it is that you're going through right now, whatever's keeping you up late at night, he's orchestrating every detail. Consider that only he can change a human heart. Consider that nothing is impossible for him. Consider that he is working all things for your good and for his glory. Oh, you can't see it, but he's working for your good. You don't have the eyes to see it. He's behind the scenes working for your good and for his glory. Consider that he who began a good work in you and in others will be faithful to complete it. Consider that he is good and he always does good. That's what David says in Psalm 19. You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. What David is saying is, I've forgotten that truth. I've forgotten that you are good and I've forgotten that you always do good. So teach me that statute again. And maybe that's you today. You have forgotten that God is good and that he always does good and you need to be taught that truth again. 
you can be taught that truth again by considering Jesus. Consider Jesus whenever anything comes up in your life. That's what I did this week. I was talking with my wife Heather about some things going on in our lives and after a while, I just stopped. She was on the bed and I was standing in the bedroom and I just said, let's just talk about Jesus now. I can't talk about this stuff anymore because it's stressing me out. We need to stop and consider Jesus. Let's talk about him for a little bit. And you know what? It helped. It didn't make the issues and the problems disappear from our lives, but it helped us to just stop and consider Jesus for a moment. And so I just kept saying this to myself all week. I was preaching to myself all week, consider Jesus consider Jesus. When my heart would start to drift and worry and fear, consider Jesus, consider Jesus. And I was like a broken record to myself all week. Consider Jesus, consider Jesus, consider Jesus. And you know what? It brought me peace. It gave me some hope because I brought Jesus into the situation. When Jesus comes into any situation, he brings hope, he brings peace. It settled me. It didn't solve my problems or make them go away, but it settled my heart for a while. And then I had to start dwelling on the junk again, and then I had to do it all over again. I suggest you try it. It's just two words, very simple words. So my advice to you today as your spiritual doctor is to take two words and call me in the morning. Consider Jesus. And by God's grace, if we take those two words, we will endure, and we will have hope, and we will have peace if we consider him who endured such hostility against himself, we will not grow weary. We will not be faint-hearted. If we consider Jesus, we'll run the race. If we consider Jesus, we'll lay aside every weight in the sin that clings so closely to us. Let's end this sermon with some more words from Charles Spurgeon about the necessity of meditating upon God. Heather and I read the, I don't know if you have the morning and evening Spurgeon uh, app. You can get it. It's free. And it will, it's, we, we're always talking. I was like, did you read Spurgeon this morning in the evening? Did you read Spurgeon tonight? I encourage you. It's free. Morning and evening uh, app by Charles Spurgeon. This was from this last week and we talked a lot about it. It's about meditating upon God and his word, who he is. It's about considering Jesus. Here's what he said. We ought to muse upon the things of God because we thus get the real nutriment out of them. Truth is something like the cluster of the vine. If we would have wine from it, we must bruise it. We must press and squeeze it many times. The bruiser's feet must come down joyfully upon the bunches, or else the juice will not flow. And they must well tread the grapes, or else much of the precious liquid will be wasted. So we must, by meditation... Tread the clusters of truth if we would get the wine of consolation therefrom. Isn't that beautiful? By meditation, meditating upon God and who He is and who Jesus is, we tread those clusters of truth. We, we tread those clusters of theology. We tread that cluster of doctrine. We do that by meditation and the only way we're going to get the wine of consolation from it is if we do that work. Spurgeon continues, Our souls are not nourished merely by listening a while to this and then to that and, to the, and then to the other part of divine truth. Hearing, reading, 
marking, and learning all require inwardly digesting to complete their usefulness. And the inward digesting of the truth lies, for the most part, in meditating upon it. Why is it that some Christians, although they hear many sermons, make but slow advances in the divine life? Because they neglect their closets and do not thoughtfully meditate on God's word. Why is it that some Christians, although they hear many sermons, make but slow advances in the divine life? Because they neglect their closets and do not thoughtfully meditate on God's words. In other words, Spurgeon is saying to us, consider Jesus. Let's do that this week as a church. Let's pray. Father, we admit how hard it is to consider your son because we're sinners and we're prone to wonder. And it's just so easy to stress, Father. So easy to be worried. It doesn't take any work. It just happens. It's hard to fight the good fight of faith. But we know we can by your grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit. So would you make us a church this week that considers your son When we run into one another, we would encourage one another with those two words. That as we stress, as we have fears, and as we worry, and as we're tempted with sin this week, Father, that we would consider him. Would you do that work in our hearts? And so that we would then go out on mission as a church to tell people about your son. Would you do it for our joy and for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.